That's um, it's exactly the way you want to jump into the service this morning. And so I thank you, John and the team leading us that way this morning. Um, <clears throat> so as we, um, as we look today, as we continue to study Gideon in particular, and as Paul and I have continued to discuss Gideon, the person, one of the things I've discovered uh, that we've really uncovered, I feel like, in new ways, is that even though this, this guy, Gideon, is a guy we admire, that, that we respect in so many ways, he really is a very flawed um, individual. Um, he, he's, we're going to, over the rest of today and tomorrow, I mean next week, not tomorrow morning, next week in the morning, um, we're going to discuss, continue to discuss him, and you're going to see this unraveled. Um, but at the same time, it, 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 um, it reminds me um, in the midst of that, that it's anytime we look at these people, when we study Gideon or even Boaz, or it, when we recognize um, Dr. King, like we do over the next few days, and, and we've, we've sung some of his favorite hymns this morning, and we'll continue to do that kind of stuff, that as we, as we look to these people, what we look to honor them is not their perfection, that they aren't flawed people, that they don't make mistakes, that they don't sin, um, but that they draw us nearer to God. Um, that they put us, help us draw, live our lives more in line with what God has for us. And so when we're studying the women like, like Ruth or, or, or um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, again, the same thing. These are, these are human beings. They're flawed human beings who, who lived out life. There's only one Jesus, only one person, only one human who lived life without sin, and that's none of them. Um, I, do, I do think that it's totally appropriate that um, as we spend a few days just remembering and being in appreciation of the work and ministry of Dr. King, um, he drew our nation nearer, in my opinion, he drew our nation nearer um, to what God's image is, God's picture is for the, the relationship between races, especially among brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, it is, it's nothing short of absurd, sinful, inappropriate that we would have That's broken right. relationships with somebody based on race, especially when they're fellow followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's just that's just unthinkable. And so Dr. King helped us recognize a truth in that, I think, as a nation and hopefully as individuals. Um, so in the same way, we will, as we continue to see these flaws of Gideon to be exhibited to us, um, reminding, re, reminding ourselves the reason we're studying this person is not because um, he's perfect, but because there is a lot for us to learn from his life, from his victories and his defeats, from his highlights and, and the, the worst moments. And so um, one of the lessons from last week that if you, if you think back was the, the importance of knowing who God is. That what God spends his time doing um, a lot with Gideon and with his people is reminding them who he is. Because without that, all the rest of it falls apart. Um, whatever, when we try to jump to living the Christian life, I had this conversation with somebody this week. I didn't mention this in the first service, but um, as C.S. Lewis talks about, trying to live out the Christian life without Christ is just going to make you angry. Because um, you, you, you're going to not succeed at it, just like all of us don't succeed at it. But without Christ in the midst of it, um, man, you, you just, it's just going to make you mad. Um, trying to live out a Christian marriage without Christ is going to make you angry. Trying to live out a Christian walk, a Christian parenting, a Christian family without Christ is going to make you angry. Um, because the, the failure is, is so brutal and we just can't absorb it so well. So um, as we look at Gideon, one of the lessons last week was remember who God is because that's the foundation of who we are. Um, your identity can't be built on anything else if we don't understand who God is. Know who we are and why we're here. Well, we've got to find out what God says about that. Um, that we know His grace and that's what sets us free to live the life 
um, that God has for us. So last week, Paul had noted, this Paul, not the Apostle Paul, Paul had noted Very different. That, that, that Gideon, at some point Gideon, it was clear to Gideon what he was supposed to be doing, he just wasn't doing it yet. Um, and so I want to hand it over here to, to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so if our first step is in our identity pursuit is to understand who God is and who he has called us. So oftentimes we go about that using some language of wanting to know his will. Uh, this is a conversation that I've had multiple times and had even more in my previous job because I worked directly with college students uh, and they would oftentimes come with me with very real, very big decisions and they would be fretting over the fact that you said, I just want to know God's will. Should I be in a relationship with this person? Should I go to this school? Should I change my major? Should this be the job that I'm going? What, God, why hasn't God revealed his will to me? I feel like he's called me his own. Why doesn't he tell me then what to do? And I think that there's so many times, and I don't want to make little of those big decisions and taking those decisions to God, but I feel like so many of our times we use that as kind of a crutch or as a crippling mechanism. And what we're really asking is we're really asking for a plan spelled out that we like. When in all reality, when we're asking of God, God, what is your will? So oftentimes, I imagine, he just sits back and says, well, I've already told you. I've given you my will. I've given you my word. And that is because I have called you to be somebody that I am empowering you to be, so then live like it. Live like righteous men and women of God. And this is clear again in the scripture, as we see in 1 Thessalonians, it says, for this is the will of God. See, if we're wondering and we're questioning, it's right here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passions of lust like the Gentiles do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brothers in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This is the will of God. We have a calling to live rightly. And there's going to be a lot of times we're going to have to decipher and understand how that plays out in our decisions and in our lives. But the calling is still there. The will is still expressed. And no matter what those choices are and how we navigate those waters, it isn't that we are, need to worry about those decisions in so how they affect us living rightly for God's kind of divine specific will for our plans as much as it is for us to live out whatever decision it is that we take according to his will, which is to live righteously and to live rightly in relationship with him. And so I think Gideon walks in this, and this is what we see here, and what we finally get, if you're on with our roller coaster of our ride last week, uh, what we finally get is we finally get kind of another up moment. We finally get where Gideon's starting to put this together, but even in that, uh, it all comes, comes to head in quite a beautiful and kind of mixed up mm -hmm. picture. So let's begin kind of in uh, the book of Judges, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open up and flip there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you may want to look in some of the racks in front of you, and hopefully there's some um, uh, Bibles that are, that are going to be made available there, and you can grab one. Uh, but turn, and we'll start in Judges, uh, chapter 7. That's right. And Jerubbabel, that is Gideon. That was his, remember his nickname was, he's Baal's problem. Um, that's Gideon. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So the spring of Herod, where they are, the word Herod there means trembling. 
Now again, that was probably meant to reference the beauty of the spring, of the water, of the, the river that flows from it, the way it, the way it kind of ripples and stuff. But it's going to have a, a double meaning here that you're going to see in just a second, and I'm going to be referencing. So Gideon, after his fleece experiments, and all the other stuff that he's had with God, all the other interactions with God, is he's finally ready to fight. He's put out the call. A whole bunch of Israelite people have shown up. They're ready to fight. Um, they're still outnumbered about four to one. But for the Jewish people, those are pretty good odds. Um, and so they're, they're, finally, it seems like he's, maybe he's ready. He's in a good spot. It's very defendable. They've got water. And, chapter, and verse 2 says, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give you the Midianites into their hand. Lest the people of Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So, so it seems like Gideon's finally ready. He's finally gotten it together. And God's going to throw him a curveball. And he says, you know what? I think this is too many people. Um, so God then has him follow the law. <clears throat> the law of, of Israel, actually, which is spelled out in Deuteronomy 20, um, which we'll look at. There's very specific rules for when the people go to war, what it's supposed to look like. And, and this is the year of the judges, so probably no one had looked at this in a long time. So, But God tells Gideon, and this is, this is what it says. In, in Deuteronomy 20, every time they go to war, they're supposed to do this. And there's much more, but this is part of it. The officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who's fearful, faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the, pe- the heart of his fellows melt like his own. When the officers have finished speaking to the people, then the commanders will be appointed at the head of the people. So, first things first, you've got, you're outnumbered about four to one. Let's start by saying, if anybody's afraid, you guys head on home. So again... This is not a war like people. They've not fought in years, not since Barak, and, and, and a lot of these people weren't there for that. So if any of you are afraid, head home. So about after, after, out of about 32,000 people, 20,000 leave. Apparently, it wasn't some huge stigma. You weren't called a coward for the rest of your life. It was just, nope, I don't think we're going to win this one. I don't think God has given you this one, so I'm heading home. And so they did. This, this had to create, you know, it's always one of those Try to put yourself in the situation. So here you are, you're Gideon, you're outnumbered greatly, <clears throat> and God says there's too many people, send the people who are afraid home. I don't know what you have in your head, but as you go out to the people, you're thinking, man, I'm probably going to lose a few dozen people here, maybe a few hundred people, hopefully not a thousand people. And you go out to your army and you say, anybody afraid, you want to go home? And two out of every three men gets up and leaves to go home. This, this must have created an icy place of fear in his gut. Um, God isn't done. So he's, he's not finished yet with the uh, um, cutting the people. So first what he does, God says he's going to test those who remain. Purge them is the word used here. He, he's going to slice through and keep the ones he wants. Um, so that's, that's what he's going to do. God isn't done yet. So he says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a test. And it's important, I think, for the drama of the situation to see how it actually happens. Gideon doesn't start the test knowing what God's going to do at the end of the test. God just tells him, hey, have everybody drink from the spring. They don't even know this is a test. Everybody go drink from the spring. The people who, and we've got a picture. Hopefully you can see it. Um, We got there. So you can see, hopefully, it's a shallow. It would be easy to just put your hands on the rocks there. Of course, this may not be exactly what it looked like 
you know, 3,000 years ago, but, um, but it, it would have been similar to this. So it would have been easy to put your hands on the stones or whatever, stick your face down in the water, and just drink straight from it. You, you notice, by the way, the water is so clear, you, almost, you can't see it in the picture. It's, it's spring-fed, beautiful water. So stick your head, you could stick your head easily down in and just drink from it, <clears throat> which, which is what some other people do. And God says, if that's how they drink, then you put them over here with this group. It's like dividing up for dodgeball or something. All, the, all those go over here. And then the ones who, like we're doing in that picture, those who, who kneel down and, and bring up the water in their hands and then drink it like that, those you put over in this group. Okay, so you got to go through 10,000 people this way. So you got to start, start drinking the water. And, and Gideon's standing there, and as they come back, he's like, okay, so um, okay, you're over here, and you're over here, and all of you are over here, and well, I mean, all of you are over here, and this group's over here, and... and, and 97 out of every 100 people are in this group. And it, that had to start showing up pretty quickly in Gideon's mind that, okay, this is, this, this is a very, very small group building over here. This is a, the larger group. And, and I don't know where Gideon's heart and mind is. Maybe he's still hoping, but surely God's... So God decided he wanted to cut just a few hundred more. I'm hoping that's what God has decided he's going to do here Surely he's not going to cut 97% of my remaining army out. But that's exactly what God does when he's done. God says, all those who stuck their face in the water and drank, send them back to camp. Now the 20,000 got sent home. These get sent back to camp. And God says, I'm going to do this with just the rest of you. And of course, it, it probably brings to your mind the 300. Um, even the 300 Spartans who you know, faced the Persians at Thermopylae, According to Pressfield and most of the experts, there was, there was another five-plus thousand Greeks there with them. This is actually just 300 guys and Gideon against 130-something thousand Midianites. The odds have now gone from being bad to ridiculously bad to now absurd. They're unthinkably bad now. So, so what's going to happen here, and, and why choose them this way? Yeah, I and mean, we talked about this this week. I don't know. We... There's been a lot of, of sermonizing about uh, the water and the way that they drank the water. Um, and as Chris even pointed out, it's not even a, a recent thing. Even as far back as the ancient Greek uh, scholar Josephus, he concluded that this was actually the, the, those, the 300 that were pulling up to their mouth were actually doing so so that they could have eyes to still look around them because they were still afraid, that they were fearful. And so they're wanting to still see if the enemy was coming. And so his conclusion is that God wanted to use the fearful here. Um, I don't necessarily know if that's a apt conclusion or not. Uh, it seems like God's uh, already just excused a whole bunch of fearful people. Uh, if he was trying to choose, why didn't he just choose from that lot and be done with it? Um, uh, I've heard other preachers say that it's, uh, it's actually probably the, maybe the opposite, that those who are lapping up were wanting to have their eyes for the enemy because they were the ones who were prepared. And their application was God wants to use prepared people. Uh, so go, you know, Christian, be prepared. And that's a, you know, obviously a, a, a fine and good message, but um, probably maybe not fitting here either because the entire section is about Gideon being unqualified and yet God wants to use him. Uh, so I don't think that this is Gideon unqualified. Thus, God has to find 300 qualified soldiers to kind of match it together. Um, another writer I came across this, this week said, well, apparently this way of drinking up and bringing it up was the unusual way, was more unique. Only 300 did it this way out of 10,000. And so he concluded that God wanted to use the unique. Um, and as a blue-eyed redhead, I'm like, amen, yes. 
I can go along with that. Let's use us unique ones. Uh, but no, I, again, I don't think it's clear. And really, I think the, the story is not intended to make the symbolism very clear when the lesson is so clearly right. presented. And I think the lesson, when it comes to battle, and I would say even in our own lives, when it comes to spiritual warfare, numbers are not determinative of success for our God. And when he says his will, it will be accomplished. And so what we have to do in response to that is get on board with faith. I think this verse in in chapter 7, verse 2, is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible on spiritual warfare. God is not simply interested in giving people a victory. What he is interested in is teaching them faith. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ingrid put it this way. In fact, if our victories make us self-reliant, they are ultimately more disastrous than our defeats. And I think God is concerned with teaching that faith is what matters and was what is most important. I think that it's interesting that there are two narrowing downs. And I think the first one, from the 32,000 down to the 10,000, uh, by dismissing those who are afraid, I think God is disclosing his glory. He's making this, this is going to be about me. I think the next narrowing down from 10,000 to 300 was God displaying Gideon's fear so that he can teach and, moreover, equip with faith. And this makes uh, sense as, as God so now graciously enters in to this man, Gideon, and says, here, here once again, let me provide the way for you to have faith. So continue on in the story. Yeah, so we get, we're down to now 301 soldiers, um, which was actually the number that we picked. I don't think I referenced this already here, but that we picked um, when we were teaching through this, referencing this, for making sure, that asking God to lead us in um, how many families, not giving people, but giving units, meaning families, dedicated themselves to giving to the, the new children's building that we're hopefully going to be starting in the next month or so. Um, and, and we hit 301, and it was, it was good confirmation for us. By the way, we're at like 326 now. So um, God has continued to graciously give. But he's down to 301. He's only got 135,000 Midianites to face with 300. This is now absurd. There's no hope here. I, I, I guess, I'm guessing from the situation that Gideon's level of confidence has now um, fallen quite a bit as, as he had the numbers and now he doesn't have the numbers. And so God graciously, this, this should be okay. Gideon, listen, Gideon's already done the whole fleece thing. He's met God in person. Um, God's spoken to him through dreams, through a voice, through whatever. <coughs> and he's... But I think God picks up, without even Gideon asking, God picks up on, Gideon needs a confidence booster here. So the same night, that same night, as Gideon is probably not sleeping well, um, the Lord says to him, arise and go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Clear instruction. Go down against the camp. Take your 300 and go attack. But if you're afraid to go down, go down into the camp with just pure your servant, And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened to go down into the camp. Just notice how gracious God is being here. How understanding of our frailties, of Gideon's frailties here. Um, God is so gentle, he's going to give him yet more encouragement. So, of course, God says, listen, you can just go now, or you can go with your servant, with your probably your shield bearer. You could probably go, you could go with him into the camp if you need some encouragement because you're afraid. Well, if you've been studying Gideon for the last week and now today, you know what the next verse is going to say. 
It says, so he went down with his servant, Pura, to the outposts of the army who were in the camp. So again, he's afraid. Um, this, is, this is our mighty man of valor in action again. Is, is Gideon needing to go down and get some comforting from God, which I'll tell you what it says in a second, but some application yeah. here. And again, this is that point, right? Right when we think, oh, Gideon's got it. He's ready to go. He's got the command. Go. And then uh, we take that sigh again. Of, of course, he's going to go and he's going to need comforted again. He jumps on this opportunity for assuredness. Uh, he wants, uh, yet again, God's given him a gracious way. God's provided. He hasn't asked. God's given him a gracious way to, to bolster up some faith that God's creating in him. And so Gideon takes that um, and he jumps at the invitation to be uh, assured. Now, again, we, we have to be remembering Gideon's no um, fearless General Patton here. He's, he's not some true grit John Wayne. I mean, he is, he is somebody who is hungering for any kind of scraping of kind of self-confidence or assuredness that he can gain uh, throughout this story. And I think sometimes as a point of application, I think sometimes we dupe ourselves um, into believing lies. And we say things um, that, you know, well, the, you know, following Christ or doing the great things for Christ, that's really for those Christians, the ones that really have it all together, right? I mean, how many of y'all maybe have said in this room, like, if I was only as smart as Chris, then God could use me, right? Probably a lot of people. Um, or if I, was only, <laughs> if I was only as good looking as Paul, then I would, Amen. Yeah, yeah. Amen. No, this isn't, of course, the case. But whatever it is, I do think, whereas you're not saying those, we all say something like that probably more accurately. If we look at somebody who seems to have it put together and we think that's who God will use for mightiness and we forget that, no, that's not his call within Scripture. It's not Gideon's call that he receives here. Again, Gideon, no character in the book of Judges receives more direct mm -hmm. revelation from God than Gideon and yet it does not allay his faint-heartedness. Mm -hmm. He still is scared. So I think of the question we must ask ourselves, even this morning appropriately here, is where do we perhaps still have faint-heartedness in our own lives? I mean, how many, how many of us know right now that coworker or perhaps fellow student that we know Christ has put uh, into, uh, into our lives a specific call to share our faith with him, yet we don't do it because of fear? How many of us still, because of fear of uh, financial security, put more faith and trust in our 401ks than in maybe perhaps tithing? How many of us um, maybe dupe ourselves with the phrase, oh, if they only knew this about me, dot, 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 however you finish it. And because of that lie, we don't jump in and participate in a life group because we're afraid of being exposed. Or maybe what is the fear or insecurity inside of us that says, you know, I don't have anything to offer anybody else, let alone children, so I can't serve in the children's ministry. I think these things, these dupings of ourselves are just that, they're lies. And it shouldn't be that we see those unqualifications and in that unqualified state, we say God can't use us. We should see those unqualifications and say this is exactly what I see in scripture of who God uses. Let me pray desperately for him to do that mighty work. And so where is it this morning that perhaps you are faint-hearted? And if that is you and you can't identify it, then take comfort. God is a God who gives grace more than once. And here it is yet again, God is giving grace to Gideon. Again, even now without Gideon's asking, 
And so he receives, jumps on that, and experiences this miraculous event. I mean, this is clearly a miracle. God is doing something miraculous just for Gideon as we continue our story in 13. So it says in 13, when Gideon came, behold, so he and his servant go down into the camp, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it. So it fell and turned it upside down and the tent lay flat. That sounds like a dream, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's just some nonsensical, like, so a loaf of barley just rolled into the camp under its own power and smashed a tent. So at that point, I, I can imagine Gideon thinking like, that. was that what I was supposed to hear? Like, was that a... And, and barley bread, by the way, this is significant in that barley bread was probably the only type of bread the people of Israel had left for the last seven years. No one eats barley bread because of its coarseness. It's nasty. You don't want to eat it. And yet the people of Israel were stuck eating it because the Midianites had been stealing all of their, um, everything else they would have made bread out of. And so barley bread here probably does represent Israel. But in case you aren't sure how to interpret this strange dream of a loaf of barley bread rolling into the Midianite camp, it's okay. His comrade is going to interpret it for him. And, and listen to this interpretation. This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. That's pretty extreme interpretation of a barley loaf, right? I mean, God, God is now speaking through his spirit, through this Midianite soldier, with this extreme interpretation of a simple dream. It could have just been like, yeah, don't eat any more barley bread before you go to bed at night, man. That's, that's bad for you. This was an extreme, God's going to crush us all through Gideon. That's what's about to happen. And by the way, you can imagine that, that dream and its interpretation spreading through the camp of Midian as, as they start telling each other about it. Well, Gideon, after the, after the fleece, after speaking to God in person, after all these other things, now he worships. Now, I do think, I don't, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but I do think it's a reminder for us um, Man, we are so well-led in worship here, and I'm just talking about the singing, talking about the opportunities to pray, to serve, to give, but we're so well-led in that. I think it's a good reminder to us that we, we shouldn't have to wait for some miraculous sign before we worship. At any point along in here, it would have been just fine for Gideon to worship. Um, so if you, if, if you find yourself waiting until Sunday morning uh, to worship, then then you may be missing something there in that. Then we get this, this um, finally, he, he finally gets it, it rolls into camp, he understands the concept there. Gideon then goes back, he goes back and says, okay, now, now, I, now I really, really, really get it. And he goes to his people and he says, look at me and do likewise. In other words, they're going to come back right, he goes back to his people and they're going back right now, which is what God had told him to do before, but if you're scared, you can go hear this. He goes down into the camp with, um, with all of his men. He takes us as his sign to move. He divides them into the three groups. They come into the edge of the camp, and he says to them, here's his instructions. He says to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the shofar, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me blow the trumpets on each side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Notice that? Shout for the Lord and for Gideon. 
Now, a lot, again, a lot has been talked about here. It's hard to know exactly what's going on for sure. But it sure does seem odd that Gideon attaches his name to this. Some people think this is when Gideon, he's gone from being, I, can't, I don't have any confidence in myself. I don't believe that things can really be done through me. I really, I lack this. Now his, his solution to that is maybe to jump to the other extreme, which is, well, what do you know? I, I really am something special. So he adds himself into this. Um, it reminded me of, um, if any of you are, are musical types, that Bach, um, at the end of, of everything he wrote, all the different type of music that he wrote, and you may be able to see it up there, back down in the bottom right corner, is the, are the three Latin words, soli deo gloria. Um, Deo Gloria means to God the glory. So he, he signed, essentially signed all of his music with the phrase to God the glory. But that's not where he fit. Solely Deo Gloria means to God alone the glory. Not to the musicians, not to the composer, to God alone the glory. And at least I feel comfortable saying Gideon may have slipped off of that. To God alone the glory, to God and Gideon the glory is a big, a big difference. So, um, so that you understand, we're not talking about big brass trumpets. Um, these, are, these are shofar, and we're not, we're not professionals, so you know, don't mock us, but we're going we're gonna to try to blow these. Ready? Makes you a little lightheaded, by the way. <laughs> Very good? Yeah. You heard him. You were surrounded by them, by the way. Did you notice that? I hope you noticed that. The, um, you can imagine a few hundred of those going off. And by the way, the, the image here isn't they're up on the mountainside. I think I've misunderstood that until I read it this time. It is, it's actually clear in the passage. They have come down to the edge of the camp. So your, your, you know, your Midianite army mixed in with a whole bunch of other peoples in your tents. Most of you are asleep. And all of a sudden, five feet from you, a torch is lit and people are blowing these horns all amidst the army. And they're all shouting for the Lord and for Gideon, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. That would be pretty disruptive. Um, we'll, yeah. we'll get a little more back to and that. Kind of, kind of a crazy plan. Because yeah. if you really stop and think about it, we talked about this. It's not specifically said that this is God's plan for the army to go do or if this is Gideon's plan. I tend to think it's God's plan communicated to Gideon because it sounds crazy um, and because the men actually follow it. I mean, I think if it was just Gideon's idea, they would be like, wait, wait, hang on. You want us to sneak down there in dark and then reveal ourselves with a, trum- with a, with a light so they can see us and then blow trumpets so they all know where we are to attack us because there's only 300? I don't think they would follow. I think this is from the Lord because this sounds exactly like the way God tends to do things, right? I mean, hey, you know, Noah, you live in the desert. How about you rebuild a boat, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, Moses, don't go around the sea. Just go right through the middle. Oh, and by the way, when your people are thirsty, why don't you speak to a rock? That, that'll, that'll probably solve it. I mean, when you want a city to fall, hey, guys, if you want a city to fall, we, we, you should march around it with trumpets playing jazz music. You know, that'll, that'll, I'm sure, take care of things. When a giant's threatening the camp, you know who you need? You need a boy. Make sure he has a slingshot, but that'll be enough, right? I mean, time and time again, this is what we see. When you want fire to come down from heaven to burn up some wood, you know, make sure that you put some water on it first because uh, that, that's, that's the right way of doing things. If you've got 5,000 people to feed, oh, no sweat. Just 
find the boy with his sack lunch and tell 12 men to give it out to everybody. I mean, this, this is the craziness of our God. I think the normalcy of God is anything but normal. That's right. His plans always seem uh, to be above and beyond our ways or our thinkings. And I think I, I can confess to you, and I think most Christians can probably relate, is that um, I think too small or too worldly too often when it comes to God's plans, especially that he's revealed in my life. Um, Isaiah puts it this way in chapter 55, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways uh, your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I think in our own applications, we think about our spiritual lives. I know that when I have all the pieces kind of put together. When I think that it makes sense, I am in danger of maybe being in disobedience, but I certainly feel sure that I'm in danger of missing out on what God is doing. Because mm. he always has a plan that is bigger and is always a little bit crazier and always calls me to not understand how it's all going to work out, but rather respond in faith. So yeah, so, but this is crazy plan works, right? And then now everybody's running away. Right. And just as a, as a side comment, one of the things, um, one of the things we, we very often like to do and, and encourage people to do is sometimes God gives people a, an idea or a picture or, an, or, or a vision of, of a ministry opportunity, of something that, to be involved in, something to engage in. Um, numerous times in our church, many of the ministries we're involved in and most of the ones that are truly um, successful or outside of the box or have a, an impact in our community they come from someone in the church saying, you know, we ought, to, we ought to do fireworks. That'd be cool. No one does fireworks. And, and over the years develop and thousands of people come and hear the gospel and, and experience the, the captivating hospitality and welcomeness of a group of people just putting on fireworks. Or someone says, we ought to have a ministry for, for people who have chronically ill kids or, or for kids in foster situations or, or how, do we, how, do we, how do we handle these type of things um, we're, we're into that. In fact, we do a ministry huddle three times a year now. We're about to do our third one, first year of them, um, because um, sneak, sneak preview, by the way, tomorrow is the first anniversary of South Spring Baptist Church. Um, we'll talk about that next Sunday, but that's, that's kind of fun. And so bring your party hats next Sunday. like the. Anyway, so, um, that's, so when we look at Wednesday night, Wednesday night we're meeting up here for our ministry huddle if you want to come, and we're going to be, one of the things we're going to do is discuss what are some things God is laying on our heart as a church people for, for how to engage more completely the life that God has called us to? Um, I guess a few weeks or, or months, or I don't know exactly how, how long ago it was, but the women's ministry, um, you know, we, we are led in great worship. How do we find someone who, who John would appreciate worshiping with them or being led by them? And so um, we looked at some different people, and Ginger loves uh, Shane and Shane, and so she's like, we've got to get Shane and Shane to come to the church. Well, that's... That's not likely to happen. Um, well, they're coming March 2nd. And so uh, to come and, and be and partner with us to, to minister together and to, to uh, worship with us. And so uh, mark that on your calendar, March 2nd. And so we're going to, th- these type of things are outside of the box. We want to do that. We are terrible at that. We're Americans and we're Texans. We take care of ourselves and we do things in our own strength and our own power. We lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. And a lot of times that's just sin. And so we, we want to be challenged by that. Now, their crazy plan, it works. God's crazy plan, it works. And the people of Midian turn on each other. These, this eastern army, this massive army from the east, 
They all turn on each other. They start slaughtering each other in droves. Everybody begins to run and they flee. The, in fact, the language here in the, is, is, is they ran, cried, and fled. Cried there doesn't mean tears. It means yelling and screaming, crying out. You can imagine they're all shouting orders at each other, right? They're all giving instructions and, and no one's listening. It's in the pitch black. And by the way, it gets dark in Israel now. I can only imagine how dark it would have looked, you know, 3,000 years ago. With no, I mean, it was dark and they're turning, running, crying. Um, we have a map that shows they actually fled quite a ways. So if you can see it, there's a red circle. They, that's where the battle happened. They, they head out. And, and the minute they start running, by the way, Gideon calls everybody else back to battle. So the 9,700 who are back at the camp, he calls them, they, they all attack too. And then as they're, as they're running, other, probably the 20,000 who were sent back home, they start gathering from their places. The Ephraimites who had not been involved at all, who um, we learned all kinds of awful things about them, and they don't, they don't come across in shining glory here either. They're very self-important people in this era, but um, without going into detail there. But even they get involved, and, and they kill some of the leaders. Notice that the sense of like they flee. This is, by the way, all night, the next day, and into the next night. The people of Midian, the eastern army, is running. They finally coalesce. About 15,000 of them are left. They cross over the Jordan back to their own land. And, and Gideon and his 300 are pursuing them still. So again, it's been almost 24 hours. Gideon stops in two towns, two Jewish towns, and asks for help for just for food. And both towns turn him down. They don't think he can win this. Um, as again, it's understandable. There's 300 chasing 15,000. Um, the odds don't look good. But so they, they, say, they, they choose the coward's path and say, we're not going to help. And Gideon says, well, when we're done with the Midianites, I'm coming back for you. Um, and by the way, he does. But so they go, the Midianites get across, they find Karkor, whatever that is, no one's know for sure. It's a, somewhere in that area. They put up a defensive thing. Gideon goes all the way around behind them and attacks them from the back. In the night, again, but they're getting old for the Midianites. They get attacked again, in surprise, in the dark, and they get, they get um, just slaughtered again. And this time Gideon captures the last of them. Um, there's, some more, there's more detail you could go into here that we don't want to go into. But um, anyway, they, as they're on their way back home, Gideon's men stop. They, they tear down the wall, the tower in one of these cities that was very proud of its wall, um, and, and execute their elders. They go to the other town, and they, they flay the elders with thorns from the wilderness, probably executing them um, and executing those elders and warning it's them. Uh, for their failure to help, their cowardice, and they're getting ready to head back home. That's, that's sort of where the story ends for Gideon. Not really. We're going to pick it up um, next week. But we do want to take just a second and comment here on some application of how this plays out. Gideon, Gideon because he's decimated these armies, there's going to be 40 years of peace. Um, but there's still some stuff to learn here, and then we'll figure out the rest of it next week. But Yeah, I think that there's... Certainly, as we kind of bring now our story to kind of this heightened point, everything's been building up to this battle. Gideon finally gets his identity and steps up uh, and performs his job to be the deliverer of his people as God originally called him way back in the previous chapter. We finally see this all kind of coming to resolution. Uh, and I think we're supposed to, again, there's, there's an aspect that we need to ask of our own lives. Um, how, Lord, are you trying to use me? I think sometimes in a kind of a false humility, we go back to that same thing of, oh, no, 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 you can't, you, you wouldn't choose me. Surely you wouldn't choose me. Um, and there, there really is probably some false humility because what we see from Gideon's story here 
is that God's choosing Gideon not because of Gideon, but because of his glory. He wants to make it abundantly clear, this is what I am doing. And so what is it in your life that God's trying to say, you know what, it's, it's actually not about you other than I've chosen you to communicate my glory for a big picture to come. And so as we close, are we a church that, that prays that prayer and says, Lord, use us in mighty big ways that gives us no part of taking the credit. If we ever find ourselves doing things on our own and taking all the credit and forgetting you, shut the doors to this place. Mm-hmm. What does that look like as a church? What does that look like in our relationships at work? What does that look like in our families and in our homes? I think it is a great application for us to remember God's concerned with us because he is so gracious in providing us faith so that he can expose his glory to us all, which we all need. That's right. Good. Yeah, let's, let's pray together and pray that God will guide us in this, in these understandings so that as we develop, as he develops in us, as we accept the gift of who we are from him, that will begin to inform us on how to live, that our theology, who God is, teaches us who we are and who we are teaches us what we need to do. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the power of your word and we're thankful for um, the, the truth of scripture as discovered in the fact that these people are real people. Um, they, they have ups and they have downs, and they're mighty and then they're frail. Um, Lord, that the good things that come from us um, are empowered by you and with the lessons that we have to learn when we're weak and we're frail, that those lessons come from you. And Lord, I, I pray that we would continue more and more to learn to live um, the life that you have called us to, that your son has called us to, that your spirit empowers us to live. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, guide us in this. God, you're, you're so faithful. Um, we are not very faithful. Um, rarely do we really live in that faithfulness. And, and when we do, Lord, it's because of your encouragement. So I pray you would continue to encourage, to challenge, to lift us up as only you can through the power of your Spirit. We pray this according to um, the sanctification of that Spirit and according to your perfect will. In the name of your Son, amen.